Welcome to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC sports. Brought to you by JohnnyTShirt.com, the go-to provider for all your Tar Heel gear. I'm your host, Tommy Ashley. Listen to the Inside Carolina podcast sponsored by JohnnyTShirt.com. If you've been listening to these podcasts this week, you know that Buck Sanders and Ross Martin did a couple interviews that were relevant to Carolina football fans' interests. And that was, of course, offensive coordinator Phil Longo, defensive coordinator Jay Bateman. Those podcasts ran in the last couple of days. So what do we do when we have big news to discuss? We have an IC roundtable. And for that, I've got, of course, Buck Sanders and Greg Barnes. I've also got Jason Staples and Mike Ingersoll. Mm. Uh, So it's going to be a little hectic, a little wild, and completely unedited. So uh, here we go. Buck, uh, last week or a week and a half or so ago, uh, the opportunity arose for you to, to interview Longo and Bateman. And this podcast will focus on Longo's comments, but your overall thoughts on having the opportunity and and what you gleaned from the interview itself, not necessarily the words, but just from talking to him, what I gathered is they both of them actually, but Longo feels pretty confident what they've got coming back for next year. That that was my take as well, Tommy. He he feels pretty confident and um you know, he's he and Bateman are different people in a lot of ways, but Phil, he, he wanted to talk a little bit about, well, uh, you know, we're going to be missing Charlie Heck and Nick Polino and uh, Carl Tucker and Jake Vargas and Antonio Williams and spent some time sort of paying homage to those guys. And, uh, and you know, I, I guess maybe as a way not to get uh, too over the top in, in some of his statements, but um, – there's, you know, just no question that, you know, with Sam Howell, with a year that he had last year and, uh, you know, the fact that uh, Daz Newsom and Michael Carter decided to come back and with all the other weapons they have on the offense at the receiver position and at the running back position, you know, we go, everybody knows who we're talking about. I mean, Javante Williams, Diami Brown, Bo Corrales, a bunch of other people. and uh, the of the seven guys that got snaps at on the offensive line last year, five of those guys were back. So, um, you know, the, the obvious part of it is is that uh, you know North Carolina is going to have a really good offense next year. Should have a really good offense, and and they're in year two. And both Bateman and Longo said that the biggest jump, you know, wherever they've been and, you know, they get to a program one year, the biggest jump is from year one to year two. So, you know, that should be exciting for the offense. It should be exciting for the defense. We'll talk about that um, another time. But, uh, you know, overall, it was just a pretty simple way to, you know, pretty simple on my part to interview this guy is just, you know, lay out what North Carolina has coming back and have them talk about it. It's, it's not really any big mystery involved. There were a couple of interesting things that he talked about that I had not heard uh, from before. He got into specifics about uh, how he wanted um, strength and conditioning uh, coach Hess to 
worked with Sam Howell about hip flexibility. And, uh, you know, he, he talked about uh, there was nobody really to push Sam in the quarterback room. He had to push himself. And, you know, it's some things I had not thought about. But overall, you know, it was just a matter of, of touching each base as we went around. Um, and, uh, you know, he did a good job of kind of laying things out and not being too coy about anything. So from that standpoint, I thought it, it, it went really, really well. Greg, when you look at what's returning from North Carolina and, and this plate that Longo has to work with is it, it, these puzzle pieces is – you know, a lot of times you have teams that have a lot of returning guys, um, but they're either returning because they have a eligibility left or they don't have anywhere else to go. And it's not always a great thing when you have guys returning, especially, and it's no offense to Mike Ingersoll, but sometimes on the offensive line, you know, guys that didn't get many snaps and they're returning, well, it might have been that they just weren't very good at a younger age or at, you know, the year before. But my question, Greg, is I'm not sure as far God as – dang, Tommy. I know, man. I, I'm sorry. I apologize. I gave you a heads up, and I didn't Damn. mute you, so. <laughs> so, Greg, my my point is that I'm trying to make – it, and now Mike messed up with my train of thought, but Carolina's got more coming back, more production, productive guys coming back than I can ever remember. And I don't know where it stacks up in the nation. Don't really care. But in the ACC, I mean, Clemson, obviously, with Etienne coming back and Trevor Lawrence, that's huge. But they lose some guys on the outside. Carolina has every relevant guy returning on an offense that was pretty daggone explosive, um, especially as the year got going and as they got deeper in the year. I just, you know, we've talked about the hype train. And, I, you know, I'm not sure a coach – in his second year in a program, has got it as good as Longo potentially has it going into 20. Well, uh, to be fair there, North Carolina has had a, a ton of offensive talent of late. You criticize Larry Fedora all you want with his defensive recruiting. Largely knocked it out of the park the first couple of years with his offensive recruiting uh, and then took advantage of, of Butch's recruiting you know, early. I mean, that 2012 team, was stacked. I think eight starters on that team signed NFL contracts. And then 2016 was kind of the same way. Um, So, and I think the key component with all those groups, yes, the guys were talented, no question about it. North Carolina's had a lot of talented kids come through at skill positions. But 2012, uh, you had a really good quarterback. 2016, you had a guy that was getting Heisman talk early in the year and ended up being, what, the number two pick overall? And I think that's really where the excitement starts. Yes, we can talk about wide receivers and running backs, and they're, they're all good players. The reason North Carolina is getting the hype that it's getting right now is because of Sam Howell. Um, and when you have a, a, a kid like Sam who had just an incredible freshman year, and you you as, as Buck asked him, you – if he just does next year what he did his freshman year, it's another fantastic year. He's probably going to be, you know, uh, the elf is back, as Jason likes to say. So you know, it may be a challenge to get first team on ACC, but he's going to be in the mix. And you you just celebrate that fact. 
So I think that's kind of the, the key to all this is you've got just a stud at quarterback um, and everybody else around him is made better because of how he plays. And so, I, I, yes, it's, it's always good to get so many key pieces back. Um, and I think they're going to take that, that next step and be even better this year. But I think we would be remiss if we don't say the reason all that excitement exists, you know, regardless of who you have at skill positions, is because you have an elite quarterback who is just phenomenal as a freshman. So, Jason, if you've got a stud quarterback in fold, does that make everything seem better? Or, and Greg mentioned 12 and 16. I know they had a lot coming back and those offenses were stacked, but you got 2,000-yard receivers. Should have two thousand yard rushers. Um, you've got a f- close to four thousand yard passer. I mean, I just I think this year is epically good potentially for North Carolina, and main reason is that quarterback that comes back. I'm not even sure I need to answer that question because you know the answer to that as well as any of us. That uh, you know the reality is quarterbacks win games. <laughs> Uh, in in terms of in terms of the college uh, college and pro, you're not going. You have no. If you don't have a very good quarterback, then you're not contending for a conference a conference title in FBS football. And if you don't have an elite quarterback, you can pretty much forget it in terms of competing for anything beyond you know your division or anything like that in in power five quarter and power five football, unless, you know, you're Alabama, but even Alabama, you look at the years that they've won it. They've always had top level quarterback play, especially late in years. I mean, even you, you get people, Oh, well, what about Jake Coker? Well, a couple things about that. Jake Coker outplayed Jameis Winston going into the 2013 season in the, in the preseason, which tells you the guy can, the guy could throw, throw the rock. And secondly, look at his numbers in the last month of the season, the last like five games, including the the playoff. And those are elite numbers. So regardless of whether he's, you know, an NFL draft pick or not, he played like an elite player when they needed it. And if you don't have an elite quarterback in college football, you're, you're you're not winning a title. And if you don't have one and you're not named Alabama or Clemson or one of those, one of those teams, you're not sniffing the playoff and, and probably not making your own conference title game. So that's how important that position is. And if you do have one of those guys, you can have lots of holes in, in all sorts of other places and it get compensated for. It's sort of like having an elite point guard who's also 6'5 or so in the NCAA tournament. You can have other flaws, but that guy's not turning it over. That guy's causing problems defensively, maybe hitting a bunch of shots from the outside. You're going you're gonna to be a tough out. That's, that's, that's college football at the quarterback position. And, and North Carolina has one of the best returning quarterbacks in the country. You know, he's a top 10 probably quarterback in the country. So, yeah, it makes a difference. It makes everybody else on the offense better. And year two, the, I think the biggest difference is he's going to start making that offensive line look a good bit better in terms of his understanding, that's one of the things that stood out in Longo's interview about this is uh, that basically he talked about how they were, they were looking now at 
advanced defensive looks you know okay so if we call this and you see so that what what the, what what that means longo's doing with his quarterback room is he's loading up the same play calls that they have in their offense so let's say a version of mesh or snag which every team in the nfl runs at some level and then he's loading up NFL film, which their their film department has every NFL game in the all 22 coaches stuff. I mean, that's accessible for everybody. They've loaded up every example they can of teams running snag, running mesh, running four verts, running their base offensive plays against every possible defense, like all of the plays in the NFL that that, that are those calls, looking at every defense and then saying, okay, look at how they defended it here. Here's what Here's what you see defensively right? Here's this exotic call. Now, what do you do? And you want, you want to get comfortable seeing everything. And now that you have the chance to do that, now you're not learning. And what that does is that allows a guy like Howell to get rid of it that much quicker, to make that decision that much quicker. And so that's where, regardless of whether the offensive line is actually better, and they will be, they're going to look better because Howell is going to make him look better. That's where the, the the second year in an offense with when you have a top level quarterback, that's that's where the the real making your the guys around you look better starts to come into play. Mike, my buddy Mike, four year letterman, two year starter at Carolina, got better every year. Carolina's offensive line with five guys, five major guys returning. I think they're the difference maker between Carolina winning eight. And Carolina went in 10 or 11. I think it's the offensive line. Do you agree, Mike? Well, I mean, since I, I sucked as a player, I'm going to do my best to not <laughs> suck on this podcast tonight the way you're sucking moderating this thing. Uh, Too late. But <laughs> but I appreciate the question. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree with you. There's, there were some situations last year where, particularly in the run game, um, failures or shortcomings were directly attributable to some failure, failures or shortcomings on the offensive line. Uh, we had some struggles on the uh, we had some struggles with the interior three, particularly with spotting run throughs on pulls. Um, I saw several times, uh, even late in the season, so things that just didn't necessarily get corrected as the season went on. Um, saw issues with counters and powers and traps and things like that with uh, middle linebacker or will linebacker run through and our pullers were just missing it uh, because their eyes weren't up. Now, what I did see throughout the season was substantial improvement on second level when you had double team situations. So second level responsibilities on the backside of inside zone. We, we were terrible at it the first probably three or four weeks of the season. By the end of the season, we were pretty, we were consistently good. Um, We got to the second level with good hips good shoulders, our eyes were up, um, and we had the right angles, and we got up there with speed, um, but we were under control um, for the most part. What I saw early in the year was not necessarily guys that were out of control in the second level. It was just guys that didn't have their eyes up and didn't see didn't see the um, either the run-through progressing from the linebacker spot or assignment in terms of flow and and guys, guys leaving but guys replacing, right? So not understanding – um, general scheme and general concept of a play, um, you know, the, the overall goal of a play, just understanding that I have this individual assignment, this is my man, 
And when he left, guys not really understanding what to do, not getting the big picture. I saw that the first few weeks of the season, towards the end of the season, it looked like that improved dramatically. So, yeah, I mean, we're going to go as the offensive line goes. And, you know, Longo was right. You know, we did lose some pieces. But I think on the inside, um, we've got we've got some talent returning on the inside with our inside three. And we're going to be okay. Um, and, and obviously guys played last year. I feel like I've been saying this now for three or four seasons. But, you know, we had a lot of guys playing last year that otherwise wouldn't have necessarily gotten snaps if the starters had stayed healthy, I think, you know, Nick Polino, right. Uh, Nick Polino going down, gave two or three different guys opportunities to play. And that game experience is just going to make them substantially better coming into this year, because the only thing that makes you better is game reps. So I, I think the offensive line should be a, uh, it should really be a strong suit. Um, and it should be a focal point of our offense. I think you're going to be able to see this, maybe this coming year more than others, our offense is going to go as our offensive line goes. I agree with that. I absolutely agree with that. And you're coming about Plano getting hurt and opening it up for some backups to have real reps that matter this coming year. I, th- I think that was huge. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, we're going to talk about backups, specifically Buck's favorite player. Oh, no, that's mine. The backup quarterback. But first, JohnnyTShirt.com. Of course, they're great sponsors of Inside Carolina Podcast. Johnny T-Shirt on Franklin Street is a great place to visit if you're in town for Carolina football games, Carolina basketball games, and now season upon us, Carolina baseball games. Go by and see them. They've got great customer service both in-store and online. You can get anything you want Carolina-related, whether it's clothes, basketball gear, football gear, baseball gear, tailgating stuff, anything. Anything you need both on Franklin Street and online. And the best thing about it is they're great sponsors of Inside Carolina. And if you're a premium subscriber, you get 10% off your order, either in person or online. Just go to one of the message premium message boards, get that code, and give it to them. They'll save you 10% off whatever you order. Buck, uh, interesting conversation that you had with Longo about Jacoby Criswell especially, but also Jace Reuter. I mean – I think this is where the offense, and this is what we talked about a lot uh, during the season, and a lot of people sort of fretted about Howell's running ability and couldn't really run the offense like they wanted to. We saw the Temple game sort of open it up. But it's pretty clear to me that Longo is very high on not only Sam Howell, but the guys he has behind him and maybe even uh, heaping some praise, some Donovan McNabb-type praise on Chriswell. your thoughts on those comments? I mean, that that's that's some pretty hefty praise on a guy that hadn't taken a snap in college yet. Yeah, when when I heard him uh, make that comparison, I said, "Uh oh, uh, that's <laughs> gonna, uh, that's going to just get Tommy uh, Ashley out of control." But uh, uh, you know, it, it it's uh, I can feel great. that heavy breathing from here, Tommy. <laughs> Let me mute myself. <laughs> Uh, uh, you know, as far as you know, we talked about this all of last year, uh, about how, uh, North Carolina offense, uh, Longo specifically, um, after Jace Reuter went down, all of a sudden it was, you know, they tried very hard not to, uh, run how that much. And and next year, you know, I don't. I'm not expecting how to all of a sudden turn into, uh, you know, like 
RG3 or something running the ball. Um, you know, but the thing about it that makes it interesting and makes it, uh, you know, perhaps helpful to next year is that, you know, just like in the Temple game, and Longo talked about that. I mean, really, he had three good runs in that game, one by design, one on a scramble, and and one when he pulled the ball on a RPO. Uh, and, and those three runs are enough to make a defense sit back and say, wait a second, we can't just, you know, go crazy and pin our ears back and get after the quarterback here. And the ability to do that next year, I think, will add an element to the offense that wasn't present, um, you know, in 2019 and, and probably will impact how, uh, certainly will impact how defenses approach uh, defending Sam Howe. Because when he has that option, when he has that ability to run the ball uh, and, and uh, the offensive coaches are comfortable with that, it changes that dynamic uh, and uh, having Reuter in the room and having, uh, you know, Chris well there, you know, he's a January enroll enrollee, but you know, behind the scenes, I just keep hearing positive stuff about him. Uh, even in addition to what uh, Longo said on the podcast. So uh, we'll see. And, uh, but for my money, um, give me a healthy Sam Howell for the next two years, and, and I, I'll take that and run with it every single time. Yeah, I, I don't doubt that at all, Buck. I, I think anytime you have a proven commodity, well, there's always going to be people who look at the the recruiting rankings and that's kind of a romantic, sexy thing. I get it. Uh, but you, you take what you get, and if you can have Howell for two or three more years, you, you enjoy the, the heck out of it. I want to pose a question that to Jason and, and Mike, because this is a, if there's a negative about what happened for North Carolina offensively last year, it's red zone offense, specifically in terms of touchdowns. And the, the criticism on Phil Longo coming into North Carolina was that in his two previous years at a power five school being Ole Miss, uh, they were explosive offensively, but they were not good whatsoever in terms of scoring touchdowns in the red zone. And that was one thing that a lot of Ole Miss uh, beat writers and fans really talked about uh, is that that was an issue. We asked Phil about that last off season. And the response that we got was, well, I was only allowed to use 60 to 65% of my offense when I was at Ole Miss. Mac is letting me use hundred percent. I don't foresee any issues in the red zone for this team. Uh, and then you look at what happened really during that critical stretch for North Carolina on the Coastal. Uh, it was Virginia Tech, Duke, Virginia, and Pittsburgh. North Carolina was in the red zone 15 times, scored touchdowns four times. So a little bit better than 25% of the time scoring touchdowns. Carolina, of course, lost three of those four games. That ended any hopes of, of winning a down Coastal Division. And shortly after that, I asked Phil again about the red zone issues. Um, and he, he talked about execution being an issue, talked about game planning being an issue. And when pressed further, he brought up the fact that the buck just talked about that not having depth at quarterback really limited them 
and being able to let Sam run. And that had that been an option, maybe things would turn out differently. So we've, we've got three years of data that are not positive for Phil in terms of touchdowns in the red zone. Um, my question to you guys is, you, does he does he have some slack and there's some legitimacy with what he's saying with Sam? You know, if he can run more, that should help in the red zone. Or at, at what point does that become a concern? If, if red zone touchdown scoring is an issue again this year, is that a trend that, that Mac Brown's going to have to address one way or another? Well, I mean, every offensive coordinator catches flack for being a moron and calling bad plays and they don't know what they're doing. I mean, I, I don't know if you've watched other fan bases and, and the fans that are listening to this, if you pay attention to other fan bases, but every time a bad play is called, the offensive coordinator is an idiot. And every time some crazy trick play, we saw this with Fedora, every time some crazy little trick play works, oh, it was the greatest call. What a perfect call in that situation. They never saw it coming, right? These guys are genius. Um, Longo had situations last year um, I don't want to say f- any more frequently than any other offensive coordinator would have. Um, I think in bigger spots, um, which made them more noticeable, uh, may have been his problem. But he had circumstances where he he called some plays that just for whatever reason weren't either executed properly or were the wrong play call in that situation. Um, you know, trying to catch people sleeping, you know, maybe running a draw on third and long when we really had to have a first down conversion, um, thinking somebody's expecting a ten to fifteen yard. Some type of 10 to 15 yard route, um, maybe we'll hit him with a draw or an inside zone and we'll catch him by surprise. Things like that. I, I saw that, again, not any more frequently than I've seen it with other offensive coordinators, um, offensive coordinators that I played for at every level. Um, I mean, I've seen, well, I guess what you'll call boneheaded play calls there, um, but I think that's an unfair characterization. Um, what f- the problem that Phil had last year, I think, was that a lot of those came in really big spots and must have spots and it shined the light a little more brightly on, on maybe the poor play call. But a lot of the problems that I saw down in the red zone were far less um, play design, play scheme or play choice. It was play execution. And, you know, we talked about the offensive line a minute ago. And one of the points, you know, that, that I, that I, that I will continue to hammer this season as we get into it in spring ball and into the actual regular season until I see improvement is linebacker run through. Um, I, I pointed out, you know, gap scheme plays, your counters, your traps, um, and your your power plays. That was a pro- you know, run through was a problem there. But run through has been a problem in in every in every run, design run that we've called. Um, and I saw it particularly down in the red zone because things were hitting faster, right? So you know, guys not playing with their eyes up that catches up to you a whole lot. A whole lot faster and with a lot more, with, which much, with much more dire consequences, you know, anywhere from the 15 yard line in. I mean, the red zone, you know, you know, 20 yard line in or what, what have you. But really, from the 15 in, you're playing with a very compressed field. Everything hits much, much faster. And if you're not playing with your eyes up, you're going to miss things. And, and where plays get blown up is through linebacker run through in the run game. Um, a, a lot of the problems we had in the red zone were player execution. They weren't play design and they weren't play choice. Um, that you can point out three or four or five bad play calls in in the red zone throughout the season, and, and people will will nitpick that. And I'm I'm sure that'll be the case on the message boards and and what have you. But I think the real issue is is not the plays were bad; it's that the players didn't do what they were supposed to do and execute properly. Um, what I tell people is that every offensive play is designed to score, and every offensive play is designed to get yards. 
um, and every offensive play called, you know, in, in each situation, whether it's your red zone package, whether it's your, your green zone package um, or your backed up package um, or you're out in the middle of the field, you know, normal down and distance on schedule package, um, all of which offensive coordinators have, by the way, all those plays are designed to work. And if executed properly, they all will work. Um, not in every single circumstance. It has to be called against the right defense. It has to be called against the right look. But there are so many different looks and so many different defensive fronts you can run the same play into and have it still be successful if the players execute. Um, so I, I put a lot less onus on the offensive coordinator and on the play calling than I do on the actual play execution. And I think, again, a lot of our problems in the red zone are directly attributable to player execution, not play call or play choice. Jason, you want to chime in on Greg's thought? I I 100% agree with everything Mike said there. I mean, one of the things I was, I was definitely going to go, go to the linebacker run throughs. I mean, you go to my uh, film breakdowns from the Virginia tech overtime and the, the play that didn't score that ultimately uh, ended the game was exactly that it was a linebacker run through where there you've got to you've got to figure out how to pick that guy up and you know that that stuff that stuff where some of it is is being in the first year in an offense where you're you're still learning exactly how you're supposed to pass things off and if you've got some injuries up front and some youth up front that can be uh you know as Mike can 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 confirm that can be an issue in terms of uh like you said when you're when you're learning okay at first this is my assignment that's my guy well what happens when he disappears and this guy's like what do you do and that takes some time to learn how to respond like that and you've got you've got to do that automatically if you're thinking it's too late and so that's where you know i don't think it's a play calling issue i do think that there that that one thing that you can do to get better in those contexts and this is something that I think comes that is part of a coordination question, not so much a play calling question. I think play calling gets way overvalued and over discussed in general. Coordination is a lot more than play calling. It's making sure that you're prepared to respond and see, uh, respond when you see different looks and prepared to, to, uh, to make, those sorts of uh, of adjustments and all that on the fly without thinking. And to some degree, this is why Longo was talking in his interview about how big a jump there's historically been in his offenses from year one to year two, is that you're seeing guys figure out that, okay, this is my assignment and this is his assignment and here's why. And so if this, if I, if I feel this twist happening, I better get here now. And you you feel it and you're doing it automatically in year two, whereas year one, you're still thinking through things to some degree, especially when you're a young player. So I think that's a big part of it is is the youth part. But I also think that there's something about how you, what you emphasize in practice matters. And I think a lot of air raid systems have 10. I mean, the tendency on the air raid stuff and, and Longo is, is a guy who emphasizes the running game more than most air raid guys. I mean, he's closer to Lincoln Riley in terms of that stuff than, uh, than, than anything else. But I do think that, that goal line as much as anything is a, it's a mentality and you have to, you have to rep it enough in practice 
to make it a point of pride and also to rep against enough looks that you're going to get so that it is automatic so that, you know, you've, you've repped that you've repped power against every possible look that they're going to show so that when you run that, you look, we know that when we get in this situation, we're running this and we'd better be able to block it and better be able to, to push guys back and better be able to fit it. And here's how this is going to work. You've got to, you've got to be able to do that at some point. And that involves actual practice time where you're actually hitting and where you're actually working through the movements and the motions that you need to do uh, and making those adjustments on the fly so that you make those mistakes in practice when it happens. And, and, and again, one last thing going back to reinforcing what Mike already said is look, everything compresses when, when you get down into the red zone and things happen so much faster that if you do have any weakness on your offense, it's going to get exposed in the red zone. So, you know, if there are things that you can get away with, like, oh, well, you know, we got some issues blocking, you know, these sorts of things, but, you know, we, we can still move the ball. Well, yeah, you can move the ball between the 20s when you have, you know, this or that issue because teams have to still honor that deep threat and they still have to honor, you know, expand, field expansion and all of that. So they can't commit to that. You get in the red zone. If you have any weakness, particularly up front, it's over. That's going to get exposed time in, time out. And we all know that Carolina had some execution issues and some things in terms of continuity and all of that up front last year, especially once some of the injuries hit, some of the youth happened. There were some players that were a little out of shape in terms of being able to move like they needed to to pick certain things up. So all of those things were there in the middle of the field. But when you got a dynamite quarterback and you can you know throw it over the top and teams have to honor that, you can you can survive that until all of a sudden team can play a nine man box and all of a sudden you have to actually block with those guys that's going to get exposed it's real simple and then when you when you're not confident running your quarterback to regain one of those gaps longo's right about that it makes it harder so i i think it, it it's it's going to be a, a major point of emphasis this spring i think they're going to get physical they're going to they're going to emphasize uh, making sure that guys know what they're supposed to do against some of those more advanced looks and uh, that they're not giving up those run-throughs. And if they can do that, they've got the backs to to to, to do things, and, and there should be improvement there. Let me take a quick commercial break, come back. Got a little bit more on this podcast, Inside Carolina Podcast, sponsored by JohnnyTShirt.com, talking about the Phil Longo interview that Buck Sanders did for Inside Carolina earlier in the week. We'll be right back. What's up, y'all? This is four-time NBA champ Andre Iguodala. Yo, and this is his best friend, the Ohio State legend, Evan Marcel Turner the first. Every Wednesday, we drop a new episode on our show, Point Four. We're talking basketball, business, and all the culture in between. From locker room stories to some basketball analysis from those who've been in the game. Now, it is a do-bet. Do average 29 and 11. God, shit. what'd it take to be an all-star? A win. Subscribe to Point Forward, the podcast, so you don't miss a thing. When you have sports mixed with your pop culture, along with humor and celebrity interviews, your earbuds are enjoying the Rich Eisen Show. Dan Orlovsky, are you still a Jaden Daniels is the best quarterback available in the draft guy? I think the three things that make it stand out for me are, number one, I think his ball placement versus man coverage is the best in the draft. Every quarterback in the NFL is accurate. He's got the best on tape. Number two, most transferable stuff to the NFL. And then I think the third thing is pocket peace. Search for the Rich Eisen show on youtube or wherever you listen we're back 
Inside Carolina Podcast, Johnny T-shirt.com, Buck Sanders, Jason Staples, Mike Ingersoll, Greg Barnes, and myself. Uh, I want to stay here on this play calling versus execution thing just a little bit. And, and I know it's tough to pull out a player or two on a season. But, Mike, I'll ask you first. Give me a player or two that uh, maybe we're, we can compare and contrast the the execution of it versus maybe the the rationale behind calling said play. Give me one or two in your opinion that you saw last season. Yeah. So play execution. Well, one, one thing I'll say is it, I'll preface all this with, from a player's perspective, you know, we had a big long conversation before the commercial break about uh, red zone production and whatnot. From a player's perspective, the most difficult place to score from on the field is anywhere between the 10 yard line and the four yard line. Um, particularly if you are first and goal from the 10, right? Or first and goal from the nine. Absolutely brutal. Um, for all the things that Jason just touched on and, and, and I've, I've tried to say, but not nearly as articulately, um, you know, the, the field is much more compressed and things are much more difficult to score from, from those yard markers, uh, just because you, you need plays that can gain yards, Right but you're playing against a defense that's da- that's completely downhill for the most part and you need to gain yards but you don't have the benefit of being able to stretch a defense. So that compression down there makes things real difficult. So just so the fans understand the hardest place to score from at any given point in a game is anywhere between the 10 and the 4-yard line. From the 4-yard line, you gain 1 yard 4 times and you score, right? Um from the 5-yard line, you gain 1 yard 4 times and you're stopped at the 1 and you turn the ball over. All right? That that's that's kind of the logic behind that. Um, but two plays I can think of. The first is a, in terms of play execution is against NC State, which ended up being a rousing win and everybody was was really happy. But there was a point in that game where I thought, oh, here we go again. Um, I believe it was uh, McKeithen was pulling. We had third and one. Um, we had just run the ball down NC State's throat. We were down in the red zone. I think we were on uh, – it may have been uh, – the 15 yard line, maybe we're even in closer, Um, but it was, it was third and one and we ran power and we had been running the ball for the most part, pretty effectively on that one drive and staying on this run through theme. This is turning into the run through podcast, the run through (laughs) the run through round table podcast. Um, McKeithen didn't see the middle linebacker just hit the gap. As soon as McKeithen left, right. Or let me back up. It's a little less on McKeithen. As soon as McKeithen leaves, you see the middle linebacker hit the gap right where he left. The back block missed it. The center missed it completely. Um, that linebacker ended up blowing up that entire play for something like a 10-yard loss. Um, so we went from third and one to fourth and 11 or fourth and 12, and it killed that drive. Um, and at that point, I thought, oh, here we go again. Now we know how the rest of the game turned out. But, uh, you know, that 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 is a perfect example of playing with your eyes up, seeing what's happening in front of you and being able to adjust on the fly, right? The, the center is looking run through linebacker to backside, um, backside defensive lineman, right? So he's looking, he's looking for the way that play is set up is he should have um, either, either a, a, a three technique over McKeithen or a um, or like a two I G technique on on McKeithen's inside shoulder for that back block, but what he needs to be cognizant of is that middle linebacker hitting that gap as soon as McKeithen leaves, and he did it. I mean, it, as soon as McKeithen, as soon as he saw him 
open up into that pull. He just took off. McKeithen didn't have his eyes up. Center didn't have his eyes up. And there was no one there to take that guy over. And there were two guys that should have at least seen it. Um, it's so a tough a- play for the linebacker, by the way, everybody. That is a really tough play for the linebacker. But if you got a guy that can make it, that changes everything. Exactly. That it was it was it was phenomenal execution the way you draw it up. The absolute you know, perfect storm of doing everything right on the defensive side um resulted in that in a in a ten to twelve yard loss on a third and one. Um and it, it should have been an easy conversion for us. So that's player execution. Play call, and everybody remembers this play, um down on the goal line against Clemson, the speed option or the read option, I guess. Um we ran it into the boundary. Now I understand the, the 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 thinking with running with running plays into the boundary. You got a guy like Sam Howell, right? You want to put the Longo's rationale and Mac Brown's rationale was the correct one. Sam had gotten us to that point, put the ball in his hands, let him make the play. The problem is that works against Boston College. That works against <laughs> Mercer. It doesn't work against a team that's got you know eleven potential NFL you know, draft picks or, you know, at, at worst practice squad players, right. Um, all with sub five flat speed for the most part, all of which can blow that play up. When you, when you're, when you're against a defense like that, if you're going to run that play and I don't I'm not even saying it was the wrong play decision. I think it was run schematically into the wrong formation. That's the kind of play that if you're going to run that, when you've got that much speed, you want to spread out speed. Right, you don't want to compress it and run it into the boundary where now they have a smaller field, a shorter field, right? And even if they over pursue, if you have three guys over pursue, the last guy in that in that chain is going to make the play, and that's actually exactly what happened. If you go and watch the film, you had a couple of guys over pursue. Isaiah Simmons ends up being the guy um, who's kind of last in line, and just because the first two over pursued but slowed Sam down, Isaiah Simmons makes the play. You know, and, and, and Clemson ends up winning that game. If you run that into the field against speed, right? If you run that speed option against speed into the field, you have more space to work with. And maybe you pick up a couple of yards. Maybe you end up scoring right there. Um, I don't know that that's what's going to happen, but I think that's a good example of that's not execution. Everybody did on that play what they were supposed to do. Clemson was just better. They were better suited for that. They knew it was coming. If you listen to Brent Venables after the game, he knew that was coming. Um, but the, a speed defense with that much talent on it running into a short field is going to win nine out of ten times. Run it into the field, give Sam a little bit more space, maybe you have a different outcome. So that's, a, that's the difference between player execution, right, McKeith and McKeithen pulling at NC State um, versus maybe play decision and maybe, maybe much less the play, right, the play itself, which I think may have been the right call. But uh, formationally, play schematics, you know, the, the wrong schematic decision. And, and the thing is, actually, on that one, even with that, and I, I agree with you, that was one of the things I kind of challenged the call a little bit after, after that game in, in my breakdown of it. The same thing, at, at the same time, though, if Sam hands that ball off, that might have scored if, if he hadn't decided to keep it. If he'd have handed it off, there was a chance – I mean, it's not a guarantee given given the, you know, it was, it was going to be one where where you'd have to run through a tackle on about the one or the half yard line, but they got a chance to score given the numbers kind of coming into that into that spot. So to some degree, you can argue that there's a pretty significant execution po- uh, point there where Sam, I think, made the wrong call. Yeah, uh, it was fair. a defensible, it was a defensible call given, you know, the defensive end kind of, finessed it a little bit 
you know, muddied it a little bit. But, you know, usually the rule is if the, if the defensive end muddies it, you give it. So, you know, and the defensive end was good enough and, like you said, athletic enough that he was able to over-pursue a little bit, muddy it, and then get back and, and, and challenge the quarterback and run the quarterback into a uh, – uh, into another situation, but a, a that's another saw. run them into a right. Buzz saw. Yeah, yeah, but that's another example where even with and that's the thing in the red zone, even when you make a bad call as a coordinator, there's only so many things you can do down there, such that the difference between a great call and a bad call in the red zone tends to be tends to be smaller. I mean, there's some stuff that, you know, certain jump passes and things that you can do that like, if it's just right, then okay. But other than that, other than little tricks, which teams are going to be looking for it in, in certain contexts, there's only so many things you can do. So it's a matter of calling it and you just have to win. I mean, that's and, an, and, that's and an you absolutely talk, great point. I hope everybody's listening to that. That's a great you talk point. To, any coordinator in the country, any offensive coordinator and defensive coordinator in the country, and they're going to tell you that, look, when you get down here, especially when you get inside, a lot, of, a lot of coaches differentiate between red zone and tight zone, and that's the inside the 10. And like, like you said, inside the 10 is a whole different world. Once you get down in there, look, it, it, regardless of what gets called, you just have to win. You have to win a matchup and you have to win more than one matchup generally to score. And so somebody has to make a play. And that's where, you know, having an elite quarterback with an elite receiver or just, a you know, a knockdown, you know, left side of the offensive line, a, a great power back or something. You got to have you got to have somebody that just can make a play down there because it's going to take that to score. And, you know, it's, it's, the numbers are just not on the offensive side. And so if you make a bad call down there, well, the difference between that and a good call is kind of minimal because either way you're going to have to win. You're going to just have to have somebody that wins. That's a great point. Buck Sanders, uh, Carolina's offense. So I've talked about it earlier. Very good last year. What do you need to see improvement wise for Longo's offense and Longo's group to, take a step forward from even what they did in 2019 just as a team and and this is not necessarily a knock on the offensive line but as a team they can't let sam howe get hit as much as he did last year Uh, he got sacked a lot now some of that was on sam sometimes he, he should have thrown the ball away sooner uh you know just heave it, you know, to the third row, um, on the sideline or something like that. But, um, he got sacked way too often and he's too valuable to the North Carolina team for them to not work on, uh, preventing sacks, keeping him clean in the pocket and, uh, for Sam to work on knowing when to get rid of the ball a little faster. Uh, so that would be the, the one thing, if I had to talk about last year's offense, that wasn't always, uh, you know, not to say perfect, but it was just one of the glaring parts of the game where it just seemed to me that they, they gave up way too many sacks. Greg, your thoughts on what needs to improve for this team to take a step forward? Uh, Howell was sacked 37 times last year. 
<laughs> that, that's uh that's insanity and yeah it's a lot of that was was on sam for sure but but some of it was not and that, the best part i guess of the air raid when you're trying to throw the ball downfield the way they do that's going to be part of it and that's that's got to be a lot tougher on the offensive line holding those blocks you know to be honest when you talk about sacks and you talk about the red zone issues I think those are really the the highlights or the lowlights in terms of what plagued the offense last year. A lot of positives coming out, and with all the talent they have coming back, there's no reason not to think they're they're going to take a significant step forward. Um, I think really what's going to help this team more than anything this offseason uh, is is the competition. And one thing that, that Phil Longo talked about in this uh, this interview he did with Buck, he said it early on. And I think it's critically important. But he said that what impressed him most about Sam Howe is that even though Sam had no competition at quarterback because of the injuries, he still went in and did everything he could to get better each and every day when he didn't necessarily have to, to keep his job. If you have a team that has you know, 22 guys like that, you're going to be really good. It doesn't really matter what you have behind them. I mean, you're going to have a lot of talented guys if they have that mindset. Uh, but that's not always the case. And so what you have now is because they've they've recruited well already. Uh, they've got a lot of talent coming back. They're going to have a lot of competition during spring ball, which carries over to the offseason and then the training camp. Uh, and it's kind of the whole you know, iron sharpens iron type deal. Uh, the more competition you have between good players – it makes them better. It makes them focus more, makes them concentrate more. Um, and you just see gradual improvements. And I, I think that's really the key for this offense in, in the next two years, really, um, is you're not necessarily going to see significant steps for the most part, but you want to see gradual improvement. And we're not talking about an offense that was bad by any stretch of the imagination. This is a very good offense. Um, and so if you make gradual improvements in terms of, your run blocking in terms of some of the, the pass blocking that, that Jason and, and Mike talked about. Uh, running routes better. Sam Howell doing a better job getting rid of the ball quicker, making his reads just a split second quicker. All of those things add up, and those things add up because you've got the competition that you're working on you know, in spring and training camp and those types of things. So I think that's really the, the, the key area is the coaching staff really driving these guys and the players helping each other get better that's how you're going to see significant improvement uh, next fall. So, and, and this is a question that Buck, you addressed with Longo and he talked about Sam Howe. So I, I'll ask Jason when, you know, it's tough to look at Howe's body of work and say he could be better. He could, he could be, I mean, he could be significantly better, I would think. But my question to you, Jason, is watching him play and watching a ton of film on him is what specifically do you see that he could make big strides in? I mean, the mental aspect, um, some decision-making, not holding the ball, I get that. But where is something that he could significantly improve on that fans and you know inside Carolina folks could see the difference when he steps out on the field? I think the, the biggest thing is being willing to willing to pull the trigger early in the game on – some downfield throws that are open. So you know you've got a matchup you like. You know you're kind of looking there. 
and I know you don't want to turn it over, but being being willing to just go ahead and let it loose when you know when when that guy is just starting to break open early in games. There were times last year when I I look at the at the uh, at the replay when I was you know going through for for things that I would do for the the film set the film study sessions, and I'd see you know Wake Forest was one of those that really stood out. Where it's like, oh man, you've got the the rotation going the opposite way. You look the wrong side. If you're looking over here and you just pull the trigger right away, that's a touchdown, man. You got a wide open post going where where the safety's going opposite way. Just throw it over the top and you have a touchdown. And he didn't pull the trigger. He he started on the other side, noticed the rotation a little late, and then came over and then was just like, uh, and then didn't pull the trigger and then ended up, you know, kind of having to scramble and run away. And it's like, Oh man, if, if, if he does, if he sees that just a split second earlier and understands that throw away from rotation here, then you're going to have that guy, you know, with like two yards upfield, then all of a sudden that's a freebie touchdown. And you know, it's funny because the guy, the guy throws a great deep ball and he, he threw so many dynamite plays downfield that it's funny for me to say, but I think he can still become a lot better quarterback in terms of quickly recognizing and then throwing some of those downfield throws particularly early in games and and early in the you know in the first half when you know this year he was he was playing a little conservative and there were times where I think he was just hesitant to pull the pull the trigger and I think that's where we can see the biggest the biggest immediate improvement next year and that's just understanding the offense and understanding where you can go ahead and take those shots early without it being a risk. And I, I think I think that'll lead to some to some first half leads that we didn't see this year. Buck Sanders, I'm gonna turn it to you to wrap this one up. Uh if you're listening to the podcast and you have not listened to the Phil Longo interview that Buck did um last week with Longo. It was posted a couple of days ago. You got to go back and listen to it. Otherwise, this podcast doesn't mean a lot and I've jumbled it up so much so it might not mean much anyway. And then read Ross Martin's article on uh Longo's preview of the UNC offense, sort of a a recap of that podcast and of course plenty of discussion on the message boards. Uh but Buck, I'm giving it over to you. Tell us what we can look for as far as football coverage in the immediate future as we speed towards spring practice. Well, on, on Friday, um, we're going to release a podcast uh, with another group of guys, including myself, and uh, you know maybe some of these guys as well will be able to chime in. Um, dealing with the interview that uh, Ross Martin and I did with Jay Bateman, uh, which is was really interesting to me. I, I love talking to Jay Bateman, uh, you know, in, in an interview situation. He, he's just a different kind of guy when you ask him questions. So uh, look forward to that on Friday. And uh, the Bateman uh, podcast is up, the interview that Ross and I did with him. So you can listen to that over the next day or so. So you can that podcast will make sense. And Tommy, I, I, you didn't do a horrible job keeping this organized. You know, you, you just, you get to be like a punching bag for some of these guys, you know, behind the scenes picking on you. I'm just going to stick up for my boy, Tommy here. It's yeah. okay, Tommy. I know the feeling. Tell them, but 
He's got these old football players think they can still pick on people, especially offensive linemen. <laughs> <laughs> That'll wrap this one. Uh, yeah, I know how your guys were. I used to hang out with some of your your buddies, your your older buddies, Mike. You know, I always wanted to be on the right side of the fight, so I hung out with the op- offensive linemen. That'll do it for this edition of Inside Carolina Podcast, sponsored by Johnny T-Shirt. Many thanks to Mike Ingersoll, Jason Staples, Greg Barnes, and, of course, Buck Sanders, and to Johnny T-Shirt for sponsoring us. Be on the lookout for that podcast, discussing Jay Bateman's interview coming up tomorrow. Thanks for listening to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com. Brought to you by JohnnyT-Shirt.com. Where to go for your next Tar Heel gear purchase.